You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story, now part of the Marketing Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm excited to introduce, or should I say reintroduce you to Father Dave Dwyer. If you've been listening since episode one, you may recall that Father Dave was our first guest on Uncorking a Story. As a reminder, for those of you early listeners, Father Dave is the executive director of Busted Halo, a media outreach of the Paulist Fathers, and the award-winning host of the Busted Halo show, which can be heard weeknights on Sirius XM's radio's The Catholic Channel. Prior to ordination, he directed television for MTV and Comedy Central, and we're excited to have him back to discuss his latest book, Mass Class, Your Questions Answered. Welcome back to Uncorking a Story, Father Dave. Thank you, Mike Carlin. I was on episode one. What episode is this? This? Oh, that's a that you now now you're stumping <laughs> me with questions. This well, because is, if it was one, I want to know how many went half in between, you know, before I came back. <laughs> this is episode 189. Nice. Wow. 189. 187 episodes without me. <laughs> I don't know how we survived during those challenging times. Without how that laugh. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I can't complain. I'm an empty nester now. Oh, really? Oh, the kids are out. The kids are out. You have triplets, no? I, I still do. Um, <laughs> I still do. They're just not in the house anymore. <laughs> that's another feather in my cap. We managed to keep all of them alive for 20 oh, great. years. Great. Great. Which Congrats. Which is good. They are gone. Uh, two at the University of Connecticut, one at Sacred Heart University. Uh, both, All three in Connecticut, though. All three, and thank goodness, they're all close by. <laughs> and the one at Sacred Heart literally lives 15 to 20 minutes away. If there's traffic, wow. we see her the least, the least. Now, do they like that they are close? I mean, because some twins, I know less about triplets, like really kind of bond and want to be near each other. No, they're they're happy to be. Um, <laughs> you know, especially the girls are happy with distance. Uh, you oh, know, two of them, two right. of them go That's to right. UConn. It's mix and match, I forgot. Mix and match. Mix and match. The, uh, my son and daughter, who both go to UConn, they're fine being together. The girls, it's like oil and water. It's no good. <laughs> Got it. I'm told they're going to be friends one day. but One day. One day. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but this is not about me. This is about oh, you. Oh, I love interviewing people, though. So now I have to be on the other side. <laughs> the tables are turned. I'm Ooh. curious. I'm curious. <laughs> Great. Um, since we do know a bit of your backstory from the early days, but I, I have to know, where does the story behind this book begin? Well, that's 
A, a fascinating question. I mean, I would say really, I'll put two beginnings. I'll go further back in time as we go. So one beginning would be when we started the radio show on Sirius XM, which, well, actually, no, I would even go back a little farther than that. So speaking of podcasts, here we are on Uncorking a Story podcast. Starring Mike Carlin. When uh, when podcasting first started happening, I had just taken over only a couple years newly in a job of a ministry that was dedicated to young adults, people in their 20s and 30s. And, of course, a lot of the feedback we were getting is like, hey, this new thing, podcast, you guys should do a podcast. And both myself and the other um, the light person that was working here, Mike Hayes, he may have been on your podcast at some point. He's very good. So both myself and Mike Hayes had previous experience in radio. So, I mean, we knew that we could do whatever it was. I mean, we can talk. We know how to hook up a microphone. But what we're struggling with is, well, what should what should it be? It's kind of like one of those things where everybody thinks these days they should have a podcast. But it's like, but what? And uh, one of the first things that we came across when talking to young adults there are so many questions out there, just basic questions about the faith. Not even like you'd think, ooh, the big, like, really sweaty humdingers that are going to make me pull in my collar and go, but I'd rather not answer. No, just really basic stuff. We've got a 2,000-year-old church that's got traditions that go back, if you count our Judeo-Christian history, thousands of years before that. And so there's obviously a lot to ask about and, you know, people's... Uh, uh, induction into learning about the faith typically happens when they're much younger than your three children, you know, when in second grade is when we learn a lot about the faith. And so by the time people are adults, even in their early adulthood, they're like, yeah, what, what do we believe about this? So very early on when we started the Busted Halo cast, which was the name of our podcast, we decided that each episode would be dedicated to, to answering a question of faith. And that's how we framed it. And that phrase has really carried us through. That was, we started that in about 2005, so probably like 17 years. So that's. I, that's did, I didn't even have gray hair back then. The no, no, you don't have much now. Very little. Oh, there, but you gotta look close. Uh, I can't zoom. It's hard to see. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, that, that's probably the, the, if you say the origin of the book, because other than that, other than answering questions of faith, on a podcast and then later on a satellite radio show and for the last 16 years on satellite radio, it, I don't think it would have occurred to me, oh, I'm such a good teacher or something like that, or I'm such a good question answerer. Why don't I write a book where I ask, where I answer questions? That would certainly not have occurred to me prior to this legacy that's now quite a bit, uh, quite a few years old. So we call it Mass Class, Your Questions Answered. And I have been saying on the radio that I only consider myself one of the authors, maybe perhaps the primary author. We could give some credit to the Holy Spirit, probably, maybe as the super-duper primary author. But many of the other authors, because the questions are real and genuine and we extracted them from the audio archives of the radio show, these are questions from people that have called in over all these years and had these questions. And what I like about that is not just that it's real or not that it just it saved me time like thinking of questions but quite honestly there's a few that i don't think i ever would have thought to ask myself and not just because i'm a priest or even a cradle catholic it's just like oh wow yeah that's something we do all the time but um i'm glad you asked that because now i have to think about it and i have to or look up some of our resources about it so the origin the story of this book started when we decided to start answering questions of faith that came in from genuine people out there. So if, if all of those genuine people are technically co-authors, <laughs> how, 
how how are you dividing the, the royalties? Yeah, how are you uh, dividing the royalties? Everyone will get a check. And that, see, thankfully, we as I say in the book, we change the names to protect the innocent. So nobody can claim question 27. Uh, that's mine. <laughs> Protect the innocent. The innocent being me and Paul's press, I think, are the innocent ones there. <laughs> well, I mean, with, with with all the questions you've answered, have you ever been stumped with a question of faith? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. What happens in those situations? So, uh, and that, honestly, where I was going to go back, the further back to answering your question, where did this start? When I was first a seminarian and still wet behind the ears, I mean, I was in my early 30s already because I started into the priesthood track a little later than right after college. Uh, I, I didn't expect that one of the, like I expected that as a priest, people will ask you to pray for them or people will ask you to come and be with them at difficult times or joyful times. I sort of, I didn't have experience with that, but I knew, I anticipated that that would be part of the job. You know, you look around, you see, oh, the priest's up there in the altar. That's going to be part of the job, preaching and stuff. What I didn't expect is even well before I was ordained, a lot of people, and this was when I was working in, in campus ministry at the University of Texas, Students would come up, even in just like the like the off hours. It's like, okay, we're finished with our big meeting, planning the retreat. Let's go get some queso. They do a lot of that in Austin. You just get queso. It's like dripping all over the place. And Dr. <laughs> Pepper usually. So uh, let's go get some queso. But here we were in what I considered like, oh, this is our we're off the clock. This is our casual time. And they were just ready to go with the questions. So questions, what about this? And again, like I was saying, it's not these political hot button issues. It's not divisive things. It's like, hey, when we do this, and some of them about the mass and some of them not, but we, oh, the book's about the mass. So when we do this at mass, it's like, why do we do that? Or Father Dave was, I noticed you said some prayers that I couldn't really hear. What are those? And, uh, and they weren't calling me Father Dave because I was a seminary, seminarian. But my reaction at first was, I don't know. I'm still just learning. What are, you, what are you asking me? And it took a while to get over that hump of I'm not the all-knowing answer man. I'm not the guy behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz that has all of your answers. Or or the who's the one in uh, in Big? Zolt, Zoltar? He's oh, like yeah, yeah, one yeah. Quarter in. And I, I, I mean, I thought to myself, don't ask me. And then very soon, like I wasn't even ordained. I was still a seminarian before I realized this is what a lot of people want. And yeah, they're going to want me to pray at their bedside when they're sick. Yes, they're going to want me to preside at their wedding. But this is also part of what they want. So I had to get used to fairly early on what you just asked me, which is, what if I'm not sure that I really know? So I find that people are okay with They're Actually, they're much better with, you know what, I'm not really sure. Let me get back to you on that. Or I would need to look up some of the good primary sources. I know which books on my shelf to go to. But uh, they're, they're better with that than if you just kind of like make something up in the interim just you know and then they come back and go well, that's not right i actually do mike i get a lot of uh, questions on the radio where people it's almost what i call like a second opinion like from a different doctor because they go my priest said this is that right <laughs> so i've uh i've gotten i've gotten used to that myself on, on both sides of the equation am i the second opinion or am, am i do i really have a grounding enough in this answer to give an answer or are they gonna have to go to somebody else <laughs> a lot of times people will go to somebody else if they don't like the answer what? so i just missed everything I asked, I asked my priest this and he uh said what, what'd you do now hmm? so i was gonna say i missed everything you said because i've been thinking about a dr pepper for the last five <laughs> <laughs> now i missed the fact that we don't drink wine anymore maybe dr pepper though <laughs> <laughs>
on these corking podcasts. A Dr. Pepper and an El Diablo sandwich to quote Smokey <laughs> and the Bandit. Um, so the, the other answer to your question, though, I, I use in the book that I learned from uh, uh, cruise ship staff, and I think they probably do this at big resorts like Disney as well. And I was helping out one time as I was a chaplain on a cruise ship, and sometimes you go along on the little excursions and you help count the numbers and carry what they call a little lollipop. You know, when you're walking through town, you see like a group of people with little headsets on and stickers, little numbered colored stickers on their shirt, and there's usually somebody carrying a little sign with a number. So I've, I've done that. And when they gave us like little training, I mean, it wasn't months of training. It was like as we're boarding the bus, we're like, okay. And one of the major principles was um don't ever tell anyone no like or or i don't know like if, if they ask you a question what you say is let me find out for you and i wish i had that training in seminary <laughs> because that's it really people really appreciate that and now i use that even like after mass so i i help out sacramentally at the church where I live here in New York, St. Paul the Apostle. But I'm not on the parish staff. I don't go to meetings. I don't, you know, write the bulletin. I'm not looking at the calendar to see all what's coming up. And so I'll be there on Sundays. And since I'm the guy up front and I'll read a couple of announcements that the pastor put in a little piece of paper in front of me. But then afterwards, people will ask, hey, what time is the meeting when we get? Somebody asked me the other day. I heard that we're training lectors. Where do we go for that? And my in my head, it's I have absolutely no idea. But I now know that what is much more helpful is let me find out for you and let me go over here. And I know the person to ask. And in the case of what you're asking, Mike, in terms of just general knowledge, I know which books on my shelf to, to go and grab, even if I don't have this right off the top of my head. When we're on the radio and there's a stumper, uh, I do. We sometimes pray to, as we call it on the Busted Halo show, Our Lady of Wikipedia. Sometimes I pray to her. Now, not everything you can believe on the Internet, but I mean, the great thing is having been at least somewhat trained theologically, I can rec I can be reminded of something and go, oh, yeah, that's right. And I can recognize something that's not. So it's it would not be the same as anyone else. It's not like a let me Google that for you. <laughs> let me just no, I don't know. Let me just uh, see what's over here. So, I mean, I do have some things at the ready. I mentioned in the book that really in the studio, the only things I have, like I, I'm not sitting in the middle of a theological library. Um, so the only things I really have are the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, a Bible, and then the Roman Missal, which is the big book that we use to pray on the altar when we're celebrating Mass. But it has not just, here's what you say at exactly this time in Mass. It also has descriptions and why and the theology behind. So those are the only three things that I had in the studio. So I decided that those are the only th three things I was going to actually footnote or quote in the book and to make it less academic or theological and quoting like encyclicals of popes or, you know, the fathers of the church and Tertullian from the fourth century or whatever it is that I would just say all of these other sources have already done that. So when I get to the Roman Missal and it says this is why we bow here, I can quote the Roman Missal. So I, I decided to keep it fairly streamlined and not a lot of little footnotes and asterisks and things and just pr use those primary sources. So the answer is when I don't know, uh, I tell people, let me find out and I'll go to whatever I think is the primary source, whether it's a book in my studio or the pastor who made the lecture training schedule and he knows when it is and I don't. I try to adopt that that kind of cruise ship mentality rather than just say, I don't know. Or also rather than say, I think the way what that does for me is compared to what my my reaction was as a seminarian when I felt inadequate or embarrassed or started to get the clammy palms because, oh, what if I get this wrong? You know, are they going to buzz me? It, it now gives me a lot more confidence just to say, well, no one human being knows the answer to everything. It would be silly for me to expect that of myself, even if people do expect that of me. So to say, I'm glad that you have that question. I now have it, too, now that you just asked me. Let me find out for you.
So I promise I have a serious question for you, but I need to make and another decision. <laughs> and yet, and here we go. I have seen just about every episode of Love Boat and not <laughs> once, not once has there been mention of a chaplain. So my question for you, would Love Boat still be on the air today if in addition to Dr. Bricker, there was a Father Dave Dwyer type character? I would be, I think the best chaplain would be Ted Lang, your bartender, because he does that double point right in the show open where he's like points right over the bar. That would be, I think if we slap a collar on him, he'd be the chaplain. I would, I, yeah, I would, I would still watch. <laughs> I, I, I love a good, I love a good Ted Lang reference. My Didn't favorite they- I'm surprised I pulled that out of my. So who's Bernie Capel, right? Was the Bernie doctor? Capel. Bernie Capel. Uh, Gavin McLeod was the captain. Sure. Yes. Little Katie. What was her name? The little one. Uh, Jill Whelan. Jill Whelan was the girl. His Lauren. Niece. Lauren Tews. Lauren Tews was the your crew. And director. um, and Senator uh, Fred <laughs> Granby. I want to say. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Was, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll admit to when, when I was a kid, my twin brother and I and our little band of neighborhood misfits. We used to play Love Boat. That's what we did. We played Love Boat. We did. I once showed up at a at a like a playtime, and they were playing Partridge Family, and I'd never seen it. And so they all had like, of course, everybody wanted to be like David Cassidy, or so they're all playing instruments. And they said, "Well, um, you play Reuben." Of course. Okay, I didn't know who Ruben was. Now, Ruben turns out was the manager, so thankfully he didn't play an instrument. So they're all pretending to play instruments, and I'm standing off to the side, kind of like tapping my foot and, you know, nodding my head, thinking, well, whatever Ruben is, I bet he would be doing this right now. (laughs) Knowing you, I bet you thought Ruben was a sandwich. Oh, that's right. Uh, Let me just stick out some sauerkraut from me. You know, speaking of David Cassidy, I wouldn't want to be David Cassidy. I'd rather be Jack Cassidy because I was a big Columbo fan. And whenever Jack Cassidy was on Columbo, always one of always a top episode. What, just just one more thing, man. One more thing. Just one one more thing. You have to do something <laughs> with your eye, though. Yeah, yeah I can't really do the eye. One more thing. <laughs> but my serious question. Oh, great. Okay. I know. I know. We have to. And I promise I'll give them to you again. But... I mean, obviously, you know, with mass class, people are looking to you for answers and they're looking for you to um, to provide some kind of knowledge and, and they learn something from you. What have you learned from from all these people who have asked you questions over the years? What do you have any big takeaways, any any big insights? For sure. Um, the Probably the biggest thing when you say that, the first thing I think of is that people are, in fact, paying attention, that I think we can sometimes get the that the feeling either those sitting in the pews or even those of us on the altar looking out that people are zoning out or they've done this so many times and it's kind of flying by them and obviously there's a dimension of that and any one of us might go in and out of a a, a feeling of that at any given time but despite all that not only are people paying attention but what we believe about the mass as catholics that that's not we're not just going through the motions it's not like a play that has stage directions and words, and we're just reenacting something that we believe that God truly makes God's self present among us, sacramentally, certainly in the Eucharist, but also even just in the gathered people, that there is something there. There's an intangible element there that even though it is, it can seem routine 
And imagine anything else in our modern world that would be similar, where once a week people just go and fairly passively sit almost kind of like a quote-unquote audience, and I'm using all these words as this is not the ideal of how it should be, but in terms of if a Martian landed, it would be like you're going to the movies, and you sit down, and you look to the front, and some guy's talking, and occasionally you chime in with amen, just like you would at the movies, like, look out for that! Don't open that door! Maybe a little less enthusiastic when you're at mass but even it may feel like that in in many ways and it's so countercultural because we're so used to obviously being very overstimulated with our senses but very much more used to in in our modern culture being interactive and and not just kind of taking things in um, somewhat didactically or, or passively so fairly countercultural but despite all that the people that do show up, and I'm not just talking about the super holy rollers that are in the front row with their veil and their rosary. God bless them. They're there. But I'm talking about, you know, regular old everyday folks in the pews. Not only pay attention enough to go, what's that mean? Or how come we do that? But they're engaged enough. And when they do get the light bulb on over their head about what that is that we do or how long ago we started doing that or what that theologically symbolizes or whatever it is, that they're actually able to engage more prayerfully in something that without that knowledge, I guess, could very well be routine, dull, mundane, and repetitive. Yeah. And and I imagine even going back to those, you know, students in Texas, you know, who are asking you questions and putting you on the spot a little bit, they're even, you know, you think about college students, and I know this was a while ago, but um, you think about them, you don't really necessarily associate college students with practicing Catholics or practicing right. anything. Right. But the fact that they're asking <laughs> questions of you, um, there's got to be some kind of delight in that, right? Absolutely. And in, in the ministry that I've done in the year since then, a very elusive demographic in the Catholic Church and, quite frankly, in society having to do with any religion looking at it is the millennials and younger, those in their 20s and now 30s and now getting to their upper 30s, if we're talking about millennials, that not only don't have a regular faith practice in many cases, I mean, not zero, but numbers are smaller than they were in the 1950s, for sure, in terms of regular faith practice, but not only that, but also not identifying. Um, we, we don't live in a culture today that we did, at least here in North America, 50, 60 years ago, where people would say proudly, I'm a Knight of Columbus, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, that there's so little of that kind of affiliation and labeling, even if people do like ascribe to beliefs of those various, you know, I'm sure there's still people that vote and still people that care about political causes, but there's there's way less overt affil affiliation with larger institutions, groups, clubs. I mean, even like club membership is down, that kind of stuff. So we not only have people, because I used to meet, you know, way, way back in the day, you'd meet people that say, oh, well, Father, I'm Catholic, but boy, I haven't been in a while. And now they wouldn't even say that. They would say like something like, I was Catholic or I grew up Catholic. And we're not talking about people that made some sort of formal process. I mean, we would consider somebody if they've, been initiated as a Catholic, whether baptized in an infant or later in life, we consider them still a Catholic. I mean, we wouldn't say, you know, in, in the best, uh, getting A pluses if you're not, you know, participating in the sacraments and all that. But we wouldn't say that person isn't a Catholic. 
unless there's some sort of like formal like declaration to the bishop and an exclustration or excommunication, and yet people routinely today would use a, a past tense in the same way they would, like I'm an alumni of this high school. Like I did that at some point in my life. So I can say that was me, but they wouldn't necessarily say like some people that are really devout to their alma mater, like I'm, you know, I'm an orangeman because I went to Syracuse University. So, so there's so much less of that these days and organized religion and any institution kind of relies on that, not only for like, you know, money and people showing up at the door, but that's sort of, it's kind of a we thing, you know, big groups and communities and institutions work as well as they do. And yes, there are flaws, but they work as well as they do because it's a we and it's not a million different individuals with different ideas all doing their own thing. So, I mean, that's in answer to your question, it is heartening to see a younger generation engaged primarily because statistically they're really not. Not only not a asking questions about what's in a book written by a priest about questions about the mass, not only not that, but not even saying, even if they were born and raised Catholic or Jewish or Protestant and went through the training and the sacraments and all that, they're not identifying that way. And, and that's a very, the researchers will say that's a very different place that we're now in as a, a society and culture than merely like it's always been. Because people's parents and grandparents will say, well, I didn't go to church that much when I was in college, but you know, don't worry, they'll all come back. Well, yeah, they used to because there was still that affiliation that was kind of almost embossed uh, or genetically coded. And yeah, well, I'm Catholic, so I guess one day when I get married or when we baptize our kids or whatever, but yeah, I guess that'll be Catholic. Now, you know, that's not a given and all bets are off. And that shifts things dramatically. And, and I imagine another shift just um, in, in the Northeast anyway, churches being closed for almost a year during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. um, I think people got used to not going. Mm -hmm. And oh, they did. They got very used to it. <laughs> and it's it's hard to bring them. It's hard to get them back. I mean, yeah. I see it, you know, in in my own parish. Um, you know, even the the ones who are, pardon the pun, religiously there, um, you know, don't show up with the same frequency. Which which leads me to a mass class question I have for you. Great. Okay. Um, which is so so during the pandemic, uh, churches at least where I live closed, couldn't go in. We had to watch online. So our parish. <laughs> yep. So. Does that count? Now, my mother, <laughs> my mother, and this is, this comes from, you know, I would call it an Arlene Carlinism because if we were ever at a wedding, um, way, way before the pandemic, right? Growing up, if we're at a wedding, it's a Saturday wedding. Um, even in a Catholic church, my mother would whisper at some point during the service, you know, this doesn't count for tomorrow. You still have to go. <laughs> it doesn't so count. it doesn't count. That was her big thing. So yeah. does, did, did it count? Did, did watching mass online, did that count? So answering the does it count question, we have to anchor this in what we as Catholics call our Sunday obligation. So if you just look, let's just take a, you know, not a, a global sample size, but just like here in the United States of America, there are thousands of different, let's just say Christian denominations. Let's leave aside Jews and Muslims or other faiths for now. Christian denominations, many of whom, in fact, compared to the rest of the world, have a fairly high Sunday church attendance. Again, not factoring in for pandemic, but just comparatively to like, let's say, Western Europe <laughs> here in uh, America, Protestants, evangelicals, Christians of lots of stripes, including Catholics and Orthodox and Anglicans do on their own um, go to church on, on Sundays. However, 
in the Catholic Church, we consider that an obligation that if you don't make, we consider that a sin. Whereas in, you know, obviously can't speak for all non-Catholic Christian denominations, because again, there are thousands and thousands, and some are very sort of local and congregational, and might have different customs and different rules. But on the whole, one not showing up at a Baptist or Methodist church on a Sunday is not considered in the same way a faux pas or a sin as we would in the Catholic Church because we call it a Sunday obligation. So when you're when our the next generation up from you and I, Mike, starts talking about does it count? What we're talking about is counting for the Sunday obligation. So for, and I do talk about this in the book. It's one of the very first questions we start out. The whole first chapter with several questions in it is. Why should I even go to Mass? So there's, you know, what's the deal? Why can't I pray to God on my own? Why do we have to be in a church with people? This particular question is one of the questions. Why is there a Sunday obligation? Because the other dimension that a lot of people say these days is, well, my kids are in Catholic school, and they have Mass every Tuesday. On Sunday, they got soccer practice. We got this and that. Why does that have to be Sunday? Why can't if we have, quote, an obligation to go once a week? What about Tuesday? So I talk about that in the book as well. So we talk about it counting. It's all about the obligation. Now, what happened during the pandemic is that bishops fairly universally, even across the world, by their own authority of their diocese, lifted that obligation. So they said, here's a way that you can still be spiritually uh, fueled and, and realizing that in most cases that wasn't sacramentally, meaning we weren't receiving the Eucharist. People are watching on their laptops or they're watching on their TVs. Some churches, after a somewhat short a short amount of time, would combine that with like almost like what they call a drive-through. Both I saw both drive-through confession and drive-through communion, but still not we're not gathering in the church. That probably took the better part of depending on where you were, four months, six months, something like that, before people were back in church. But even for a while, the bishops in these dioceses that have the authority to lift this Sunday obligation or not were saying because the pandemic at that point was still you know for the better part of two years was still contagious enough that they would say, well, th there's still not the obligation. We're, we're open and you can come back, but you can also watch online. So it wasn't a matter of does watching online count? Because even before there was a pandemic and even before there was live streaming in almost every church, there were certain like dioceses that would do a mass on television, like on the local TV station. One of the places that the Paul's fathers serve in the diocese of Grand Rapids, Michigan, they've been doing a Sunday mass broadcast on the local station for like 50 years or something. So long before that. So the question emerged, you know, even as early as that is like, does this count? Well, it doesn't count as our Sunday obligation, not because, and some people think this, there's also a question about this in the book, not because you don't get to receive communion. Because if you go to church and you're there during Sunday Mass, even if you don't receive communion, you've still fulfilled your Sunday obligation. So the obligation is to come together as community around the table of the Lord, hear the readings, pray for one another, but to physically be together. That's the obligation. Whether we might re-envision that in... 20, 50, 100 years that that we would still uh, consider that fulfilling an obligation. Because again, the obligation doesn't involve necessarily receiving communion. It is encouraged, but we don't necessarily have to do that to fill our obligation. So Mike, there was actually the big picture theological talk during the pandemic of what is the obligation about? And some people might have certainly cynically suggested over the years that the reason why the Catholic Church has a Sunday obligation is so everybody shows up and puts something in the collection, and that's how we still have all these priceless words of art at the Vatican and, you know, have all this money all around the world. When, of course, there are poor, very starving parishes in the Catholic Church. It doesn't. It's not like one big bank account. 
and we can sell a Raphael and support all the parishes in the Bronx that are struggling. So, um, so some people would certainly cynically look at that. Well, as long as, it, but then again, these days, starting again, way more, uh, way earlier than the pandemic hit, a lot of churches, just like a lot of things in our lives, now rely on people doing like automatic ACH transfers from their checking accounts. So, you know, the, the cynical people would say, well, I guess we don't need a Sunday obligation anymore as long as, you know, it's a hit in the checking account every week. Again, very cynical because I think the obligation is there on the part of our church because what Jesus did thousands of years ago was bring people together. He called, as soon as he called his first disciples, it wasn't like a one-on-one. -on -one. He wasn't like being a, a therapist or a counselor and just spending like an hour and then go, let's go on to the next one and I can, I can meet you, Peter, Tuesday at 10 a.m. No, it was all of us together, not just because that's a method, but because Christianity at its heart is about being other-centered. The reason why I would go to Mass, a lot of people think it's, you know, I need to get my own spiritual tank refueled when really from the church's point of view and i would argue jesus point of view i go to mass to see how i can be of service to my brothers and sisters and maybe maybe i'm in need that week too sure but it's it's not about i say this a lot in the book it's not about me mass is always about we and not about we so the sunday obligation was put in place long before the last even just 10 years we could say where people do connect and fairly significant ways, virtually and digitally and all that. So could I imagine a future in the Catholic Church where the, quote, obligation and does it count could be fulfilled virtually in some way? Sure, I could imagine that. That's currently not the case, nor did the pandemic push it to that point. So really, technically what it was, Mike, is that the obligation was lifted during the pandemic, so it didn't matter if it counted or not. And now in almost every diocese, it's back in place, but still with the caveat that the obligation is only for people for whom that would not be an undue burden. So long before COVID-19, the teaching of the Catholic Church was, if you are going through some sort of treatment for cancer or any other disease where you are severely immunocompromised, and to be in a tightly gathered group of people inside without circulation would be a threat to your life, the Sunday obligation does not apply to you, whether you have mass on TV in your diocese or not. So we've always said that. During the pandemic, there was a lot more people that fit into that category. And in fact, some might argue that everybody fit in that category because of how contagious it was. Um, but, it, but it's always been the case that the church doesn't require you to do something that's going to be harmful to you significantly. That doesn't mean we don't call people to stretch or to sacrifice or in many ways, spiritually, financially, etc. But um, but no, it's the church has always said, you know, if, if you or if you're like laid up, if you're in traction in the hospital, and like some people will come to confession to me because this is such a big thing for Catholics as Sunday obligation. And they'll say, oh, Father, I missed mass last week on Sunday. You know, I was hooked up to an IV in the ICU and I was unconscious and they didn't think I was going to make it. I'm like, that's not a sin. <laughs> you you couldn't have made it if you, if you wanted to. And, and yet, obviously, God bless the people that, that have that in their heart, the obligation is there. I always say this to people. The obligation is not in place for people like you. The obligation is in place for people that are sitting with the remote in their hand on Sunday morning and going, oh, let me catch the, the pregame because it's a big doubleheader today. That's why the obligation is there, because of original sin, because we would choose selfishly rather than choose, I need to go to church because there might be somebody there that needs me. Maybe not, you know, me to unpack their car, literally 
but needs to see that other people are on this same faith journey. We're all struggling, even if it's just some, some intangible togetherness and community building. But it may also be they need me to be there because they need to see my smiling face or need to hear me singing that hymn because they're in such a way. Or they're in a great place in their spiritual life, but they don't want to do that alone. I mean, they're, they're, you, we could go down the list yeah. as to what are the advantages of us actually gathering together. And that's why the church has the obligations. Well, you know, I have to say, I wasn't even, I wasn't remotely prepared for, you know, the emotions I experienced when I did finally go back into. Oh, yeah. Really? Or, and it was, um, it was Ash Wednesday, 20, Ash Wednesday, 2021, I guess, right? 2021. Um, Because we had opened weeks before, I wasn't comfortable going. My wife was very, very concerned about COVID-19. And then finally, Ash Wednesday, like, I I have to go. Like, I just, I felt compelled. And I, I broke down crying just like right before wow. mass, just kind of being, just being there, smelling the candles, yeah. hearing the organ, seeing people who I haven't seen in a long time. And, you know, you forget it's, it's not just hearing the readings or, or the homily, particularly if it's a good one, but it's, it's the people, it's the community. It's kind of feeling like you're part of something bigger again. And it was, uh, it was a very emotional experience, I have to say. Well, and I mentioned COVID-19 in the book in making that point that we are creatures that have been created by God for one another. And people without, even people that were not religious during the pandemic were then, and I would say many people are still talking about what it mean, what this has done to us, that we're less together um, physically in person a, as a people, certainly significantly for quite a while, for six months to a year, depending on where you were living. But uh, what, what that, sort of how that damaged the human race and i believe absolutely that it did not just you know in the looking at numbers of the butts in the pews and going oh boy look at all these people that are watching at home i mean i would certainly make the argument that the people that are no longer returning to church because they can conveniently watch it on their laptop were probably somewhat on the way out the door in the first place and and don't have that value. Now, I, I put that on us, not on them. I don't say, oh, these people are bad Catholics and, you know, come back when you're ready. A lot of people will say that. I would say there's something wrong with, with how we as church, and I mean clergy, sure, but even those that show up all the time or the lay ministers in the church, how we communicate verbally and non-verbally our belief, our devotion, our enthusiasm in what it is that we do and why we're there because that's infectious and con- con- contagious to use a to use a, a covid-19 term that if if that's not there well then the, the next best thing is going to capture somebody it will be soccer games on sunday it will be sitting on the couch watching at four different angles that they give you on the cable tv now or watching eli and peyton you know i mean all of that can certainly seem more attractive or more fun or better or whatever it is if we as church don't give a, people a reason to gather around the table. And and you could easily lean on, well, Jesus, you just got to believe that. And so if you don't believe that, then okay, fine, stay home. I would be err more on the side of that it's up to us who've been called in a particular way to minister to to get people to that place. It's not us. It's not for us to sit behind a desk with our arms folded and go, well, if they don't want to come, that's their problem. It, it really is more on you and I. why I would write a book. And I hope people do give this book to people that 
don't go to church a lot or maybe you have questions and critiques of the Catholic Church or whatever, because I think it is up to those of us who've got that, who, somebody like you, Mike, who really would feel an emotional connection and an emotional loss when we don't have it. Obviously, that means that's important to you. I would say that those of us who fall into that category, it is in incumbent upon us to share that passion, that love for our church and our community with others. Yeah, I imagine this book is not just for Catholics. It's for anyone looking to understand more about the Catholic Church, the Catholic Mass. Uh, I, I'd imagine it's a, it's a great resource for non-Catholics. That's the idea, and certainly it did meant... I, I list, there are several questions that explicitly say it, but many of our listeners of the show are not Catholic themselves. I mean, I would say a good chunk of that subgroup would be people that are at least somewhat interested and maybe thinking about joining. Maybe they, you know, haven't been any classes at their local church, but the radio kind of helps them there. But there's also plenty of people that are just like, you know what, I'm not Catholic and I'm not thinking about becoming Catholic, but this is interesting to me and um, and it's good to hear what it is you guys believe. And then there are some, like particular questions of the book, because as we know, people do have friends and spouses and girlfriends that are not. So some of them are like, you know, I want to go to church on Sunday, but my boyfriend says we can just pray together with the Bible. What's that? So there is a, a good a dimension of the book that's not just inside baseball and, and only interest, interesting to people that have been you know, in the front row for 50 years of their life. <laughs> the Bob Eucher's in the front row. Um, I I want to ask a couple of questions to get to know you a little bit better so the audience oh. gets to know oh. you a little bit better. And okay. one of the ways I do that um, is through pop culture. Nice. Um, because you're an author, a lot of the, the audience is aspiring authors and they want to know that they can do what you can do. Um, hmm. To do that, we want to make sure that you're relatable. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you... Uh, one question, which is, um, when you were growing up, Father Dave, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Oh, real young, it would have been Batman and such. The uh, the the OG Batman. With oh, the OG West. Adam West, Burt Ward, Ward, Commissioner Gordon with the red phone. That, that's that's young enough that I was with the cape in the backyard. Um, older though, I mean, I certainly do. When we started chatting about Love Boat, obviously that that made an impression. If I could name all those people. <laughs> Um, I am, I would say even till today, and this did start when I was very young, I love game shows. I love what I would call like like traditional game shows. There's a lot of reality TV these days that has a competition element, but so I don't mean that. I don't I don't get into a lot of those chef competing shows. I'm talking about hundred thousand dollar pyramid. I'm talking about Jeopardy. Uh, even Wheel of Fortune, I'll, I'll usually put that on like when I'm doing something else. I mean, it's not like you really got to pay that close attention to Wheel of Fortune. But, uh, it's kind of like Celebrity Jeopardy. They definitely, the questions are at a different level. But I I, I, st I would say my favorite of all time is, is Pyramid. I love, and I still get that kind of excitement. Like when somebody goes, and people don't know the game, you have to give, uh, it, there's two parts of the game, but the winner's circle time. So when there's two people, one person is looking at these little clues and they spin around and they still have the OG spin around. It's not like Vanna White where she's got like lasers now. It, <laughs> it's still the, the big chunky pieces of plastic that physically spin around and they've written on like a, what we used to call a Duratran, like a transparency. They've written the clue and somebody has to say it. My favorites, though, because they have a lot of different types of categories, my favorites is, and they'll always have one of these in every final, you know, uh, lightning round, winter circle, I think they call it on, on Pyramid. Uh, they'll always have one of these where it's like things 
this might say. And it's not always a person. In fact, rarely is it a person. So it's like uh, when you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm so red. And here comes this dog. He looks like he's going to lift his leg. Things a fire hydrant might say. Yes, dang, 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 dang. I love that. I mean, I get, if somebody hits it, goes all the way to the top. I mean, I get not emotional. I'm not like, crying. But I mean, it's a it's a thrill for me. So I love game shows. I will see your thousand dollar, hundred thousand dollars. Hundred that. Well, they they started lower, and now I think they call it hundred thousand. I'll see your hundred thousand dollar bar, and raise you a uh, Price is Right. Uh, oh, with, for sure. Bar Barker. Oh, absolutely. I uh, oh for sure, Bob Barker. Yeah. I went on eBay because I wanted <laughs> the Bob Barker microphone. I needed to oh, have a long it. thin microphone. I wanted yeah. it, and I found one from somebody in Germany. No. Really? And I bought it. I bought it. I have it at my house. I used to use it for man on the street interviews or person on the street interviews, I should say. Now, you know who else had the long, thin microphone, which was one of my other favorite game shows, although they've tried to reboot it and it's not as good. Match Game. Match Game. Yes, yes, Match yeah. Match Game. Gene Rayburn. Gene had Rayburn. It's, it's amazing to watch those. They're from the 70s and they used to change the name of like Match Game 79. Oh, so great. You watch that stuff t today and you go, how did these people get away with this? <laughs> like all this kind of, not just the jokes and the clues, but like Gene Rayburn, like kissing people on the lips and stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, that this was a totally different era. <laughs> that was um, Richard Dawson from Family Feud. Oh, yeah. He yeah, meet yeah. half the people who were on that show. He meet <laughs> That's right. He did. But, um, well, and actually, Richard Dawson, I would have said until recently, I would have said Family Feud with Richard Dawson. I honestly think Steve Harvey is the best the host best. in the history. He's the best host in the history of the show. So I, he's I, great. You know, being an empty nester, we do nothing but watch TV, <laughs> which is counterintuitive. However, uh, it's my life. Um, we watch that Steve Harvey before we go to bed every, yep. and I go to bed laughing every single. Yep. It's yep. much better than the eleven o'clock news. Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Yep, I love his much, and even that you can just see how they've changed that. There's, there's only a. a there's not nearly as many as have been around in repeats and syndication as there are since the pandemic. But I find it interesting to look at how they've changed the sets of things like news shows and game shows since the pandemic where people are farther apart. One of the, Steve Harvey always used to, at that final thing, he would put his arm around the person as they're seeing all the answers. And now he's like standing six feet apart. And, and it's like, you know, okay, this show still works, certainly. And his personality still works. But um, but when you look back at those 70s one, it's like, oh my gosh, I think he just patted her on the bum. I can't believe this is on TV, you know. <laughs> uh, as we talk TV, what about music when you were when you were younger, uh, when you were just Dave Dwyer? What, what were well, you listening to? See, when I was Dave Dwyer, it was the 80s, so I am still, I would say I'm still squarely stuck in not just the entire 80s genre, but the New Wave, New Wave Dave. That's what I, uh, I was into all the, in the 80s, what we called New Wave. Now you'd find it as the classic or uh, First Wave. First, first wave. wave. Well, First Wave is the Sirius XM channel, but it's, it's and it's a very, like if you listen to First Wave or listen to any other, I think there's a station out of San Francisco that still has their format, like just that kind of New Wave from the 80s. Um, but, but if you listen to that stuff, it's a fairly narrow playlist. Like it's the Smiths and Depeche Mode and all this sort of synth, a lot of it British synth, a lot of the, the DJs that are still around have got British accents and stuff. But that was my, we went to the beach when I was in high school and my friend Warren had a boom box. And I'm talking about like, you know, 
like you see on posters where it could he had to carry it on his shoulder it was that big he would bring his boombox to the beach and we'd listen to WLIR I grew up on Long Island WLIR was really one in the country one of the the premium like new wave radio stations and it would it's one of those full circle joys of my life that uh, cut to many, many years later, because there I was on the beach listening to WLIR, and a DJ by the name of Larry the Duck. Larry the Duck. Larry the Duck. He started when he was still in high school. I mean, I used to listen to him. We're probably roughly the same age. But I remember going to the beach when I was in high school and college, we'd listen to Larry the Duck on the radio. He works at Sirius XM, and back before the days when we, during the pandemic, when we vacated all the studios, I would see him in the halls, bump into him all the time, and he... Uh, I think he did a Valentine's show, Valentine's Day show, where it was, I'm going to say maybe it was his 20th anniversary of his, his marriage, and he brought his wife in and had me come in, Father Dave, put the stole on and do like a little uh, anniversary sort of recommitting the vows type ceremony on the air. And I'm like texting my sister, I'm like, I'm on Larry the Duck show. She's like, Larry the Duck, like she's more excited about Larry the Duck than her brother who's got a radio show that's all over the country. But I mean, that's that's one of those things that just you just can't believe. You look back and go, I would have never thought this is where I'd be when I was back on the beach listening to Warren's boombox. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Larry the Duck. My mother, my, so many Arlene Carlinisms growing up, but one of the things <laughs> one of the things that she always used to say, and maybe I don't think this is appropriate for a mass class, but Whenever she would get upset, she would say, Lord, love a duck. <laughs> I, to this day, between that and I can't win for losing, I have no idea what either of those expressions mean. Lord, love a duck. Lord, love a duck. <laughs> no, I, I don't get it. You have no well, insight. Well, my mom used to say, I think all I think we'd explain a lot of these fairly easily because of what they sound like. My mom would say, cheese and crackers. <laughs> or she would say, sugar. You know, it's just you train your mouth to go a slightly different direction. It's like a check swing in baseball. You're starting down the road, and then you're like, let me reroute. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You, you, there's something to that, because the other thing my mother used to say was, Michael, you're full of soup. <laughs> yeah, no, my mom said that, too. My mom all the time said full of soup. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I always uh, I learn a lot from authors. One thing, one of the things I've learned, um, and just even having written many things myself, writing is the fun part. Um, promoting not so much. What what have you learned about yourself while promoting this book? Uh, I would say that, A, I would not, just because I've written a book, would not consider myself in the author category. <laughs> I know it says that on Amazon, I'm the author. Um, B, I would say, in no way was writing the fun part for me. <laughs> I absolutely detest <laughs> writing. It's my mom used to say if she would write like a, like a note card or a Christmas card or a short letter, she would use the, the phrase, it's like giving birth. And I absolutely, now I've never, as a celibate priest, I've never given birth myself, ladies out there. I know that, that one shouldn't use that analogy because it's, it's a lot worse than we can imagine it to be. But it just, every sentence is like this cathartic thing and and see and and you asked how this the story behind this book i didn't give you like the real logistical story which is i'm a member of a religious community called the paul's fathers and we own and operate the oldest independent catholic book publishing company in america called paul's press it was founded by our founder in the 1860s so it's been around a long time and the the publisher who's one of my paul's brothers and we live together in fraternity and he's been for years asking me you gotta do a book come on you gotta do a book and so the way they finally twisted my arm 
was, okay, we'll make it easy for you. We'll take the stuff that you've already said on the radio and we'll like, we'll just pull the audio files. We'll have software transcribe it and we'll put it, our editors will do most of the work. All you got to do is kind of like look it over and sign off on it. And so they duped me, Lord, and I let myself be duped, as uh, Jeremiah says. Uh, because after they did all that, and God bless them, they did a lot of work. And the, my producers helped them find the old files, and they did use transcribing software, and they put them together in kind of a logical order. They used, like I said, real-life questions from people. They gave me the manuscript, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. Do I talk like this? this is a, who would read this? And it uh, humbly made me realize that what I've been doing for 15 years on the radio, um, it does not exactly translate well to the written page. So, Mike, I found myself having to pretty much, I don't want to say that I rewrote it because they are basically they're the answers that I gave on the radio. But it, I guess how it comes out of my mouth in this genre is very different than what, to me anyway, to my standard, would look good and read well on the printed page to where I'd be proud to put my name on it. So I spent, you know, how long anyone would normally spend writing a book from scratch. I spent rewriting and rewriting all these answers to my questions and, um, and, and trying to make sure that I know that over the 15 years on the show, there is a balance of kind of the humor or using analogies and real-world examples to help people understand stuff, but also drawing on some primary sources. I had to be more intentional with that in terms of every question in the book. Because I, I, uh, when I first started doing this, I got through about a chapter and I looked back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just did seven questions and none of them have any kind of reference to scripture and very few of them have a, a reference to either my life or the real world. And so I, I was much more intentional. And so therefore it, it did seem like writing a book. And I don't know if this is actually true you, you, since you uh, are an author. And you have a podcast that is geared to authors. You may know the veracity of this, but I have heard it quoted from Stephen King when people ask him if he likes writing. His response is, I like having written. And I, <laughs> if that's true or not, whether he said it or not, I say that. I don't mind that I wrote a book now, but boy, it was not the fun part of it, it was not writing it. <laughs> yeah, you get those transcripts and you're like, Lord, love a duck. I got to go through all this stuff. <laughs> I'm no. What I said is, I'm full of soup. What's wrong with me? Look at all this garbage. We gotta put a red pen through all this. So if uh, and this is the one I always like to end on. But if you could uh, get into your DeLorean or a DeLorean, hit 88 miles per hour, go back, go back in time um, to see, uh, have a little conversation with younger Dave Dwyer. What what's some, what are some words of advice you might give your younger self? Uh, don't worry that you don't have all the answers. I don't know how far I'd go back, but if I went back to that seminary in Texas, I would tell him that. Don't worry that you don't have all the answers. And uh, also, don't worry that you're not perfect, because none of us are, and I'm certainly still not. And still be the witness that you are anyway, that there will, there will always be people that will look at you and go, I don't like that guy, or that guy doesn't convince me, or that's, that person seems like a phony. But there will be just as many, if not many, many more people that see your light shining and their lives will be transformed and they'll grow closer to God. So be who you are and keep doing what you're doing. And 20 years from now, you'll have a radio show and a book. God bless you, kid. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I, I go back to this question a lot and I look at what people say. Um, the phrase don't worry comes up quite a bit or worry less. 
Um, and people aren't going back in time telling themselves, hey, buy Apple stock, <laughs> you know, or, you know, don't date so-and-so or, or the racing form that Biff had. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bet on Aaron Judge's hit number 62 last night. Yeah. But it, it's don't worry. It's worry less. It's like reduce that anxiety. And I think that's that's a message a lot of us need to hear. Agreed. Agreed. Well, here we go. This we've been talking uh, for mo- part of our conversation has been about mass class by Father Dave Dwyer. Your questions answered. Uh, Father Dave, where can people go and buy mass class? Ooh, they can go to paulistpress.org. Paulist, like the name Paul with an I-S-T at the end, Paulist Press. Um, we used to joke when we were in seminary and we'd have to all like squeeze three guys in the back of a car to the guy in the middle. The two guys on the outside would say Paulist Press and we'd squeeze in and be like, ah, what are you doing? But that's our book publishing company, book publishing company that I said is the oldest independent Catholic co- uh, book publishing company in, in the country. Paulistpress.com. If you were to go there now, and I think anytime, probably while people are quickly early adopting catching up and listening to this podcast, it'll be right there on the home page. And there's a little look inside where you can click and you can see what some of the questions are yes just like amazon you can also go to amazon and search for dwyer my last name mass class it'll come up uh then they're selling plenty of them too and the money does come back to paul's press so you can if you don't feel like punching in all your credit card information you can find it on amazon well i am very impressed that even pre-launch it was an amazon bestseller yeah, yeah, we're like number one in a few of their categories. Now, God bless them, they have a lot of categories. So, you know, there's a lot of number one people, but I think it's good for them. It's good for, obviously, it's good for, they like authors to go, woohoo, and then maybe they write more and sell more books. I don't know, uh, whatever the rationale is. But yeah, we had that little orange tag, number one new release, and then number one bestseller for a while. Yeah. And if people want to learn uh, or get in touch with Father Dave Dwyer, how can they do that on social media or any other method? Uh, social media, it's at Father Dave Dwyer. Father all spelled out, like, you know, your dad. So at Father Dave, not David, only my mom called me David. She's gone home to God. So at Father Dave Dwyer, D-W-Y-E-R, uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I think it's both the same, yeah. And probably Facebook, too. All I guess right. I should know that. This is now, Mike, you're one of my first promotional media interviews. So now I'm realizing I should know what my social media handles are. <laughs> I should have answers ready for what's my favorite pop culture. Okay. Yeah. This has been good training. Thank you. <laughs> well, they will all be in the show notes. So uh, don't worry about that. You can always cross reference that when, uh, when the time comes, but great. Uh, Father Dave, congrats on the book and thank you for letting me uncork your story. Thank you. Thanks for listening to uncorking a story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.